Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. So at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day at the cross. Rescued and healing, rescued by the cross, by Calvary, by the shed blood of Jesus and healing by the resurrection in and out of us forever. What these five individuals found, it's available for all of us. That's the reason we're to stay near the cross. We're to go to the cross. We're to kneel before the cross. The truth is there is comfort waiting for you at the foot of the cross. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Words of Comfort, and reveals why it's critical you never stray too far from the cross of Christ. So stay where you are. The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young begins in just a moment. Now, here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Words of Comfort. The cross is just a horrific, unfair illustration of injustice unless you put with it the resurrection. In the New Testament, you see almost always, if not in the same passage, in the same context, you see crucifixion and resurrection. Because you see this in 1 Corinthians. It begins with preaching the foolishness of the cross, but where does 1 Corinthians end? Go to the 15th chapter. It's the most magnificent study of the resurrection you'll find in all the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you see, there's the cross and there's the resurrection. You see it also in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He, he, he said it very clearly. Listen to it in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which men performed through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This is six weeks after Calvary, after Easter, six weeks at the temple. Now, get that in your mind. It's a, it's a staggering fact. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, therefore, when people say, well, you know, God had this plan and, you know, the Jews rejected it, it went amiss, and God had to have a second plan. You ever heard that? If you ever hear that, you're, you're, you listen to somebody who's biblically illiterate. Yeah. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed, boy, he's hammering that crowd at the temple, you nailed a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. But God, see, there's the cross, here's the resurrection. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And there were people there who witnessed the resurrection, hundreds of them in all probability. So you can't just deal with the cross without dealing with the resurrection. And I didn't want us to make that mistake as we look at the seven last words of the cross, but the cross always is understood in light of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not historically true and real and fact, our whole faith is foolishness. Christianity stands or falls on the validity and the reality and the historical verification of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make 
no mistake about it. By the way, if somebody here, or you know somebody who's wandering around among all the religions of the world, I'm going to study all the religions of the world. Let me tell you in three little clear phrases what you can't find in a single religion on the planet but Christianity. First of all, let's begin by saying Christianity is rooted in history. That's a presupposition, a presupposition. First thing, you can't find in any other religion in the world a God who came and died for you. You cannot find it. Search all you want to search, number one. Number two, you cannot find a God who came and died for you and conquered the grave and gave you a clear promise that would be your future. You can't find it. You can't find it. And you can't find a God, as we see in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, who says, come and receive my invitation and I will do life with you and you can do life with me. You can't find it. You just can't find it. So my point is, we can circle all the world and say I'm some kind of agnostic, I'm going to land somewhere, but if we base life on truth and the revelation of Scripture, this is where you end up. So we preach the cross and we proclaim the truth of the resurrection. The cross, the resurrection, the resurrection, and the cross. And now we come to our scripture. That's an introduction. Look, if you would, the gospel according to John, that's where we are, beginning with verse 16. Chapter 19, 16, 19, 16. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. And they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross in the place called the place of skull, which in the Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription, and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription. By the way, he was crucified in a very prominent place, probably not on a hill, on a hill far away, probably not good, uh, good theology, and it's not depicted in the Bible. It's a wonderful song. He was crucified probably where now is a bus station right outside the wall there. And you see the skull clearly in the cliff behind it. Some of you have been there. It's a bus station, all probability. Uh, if you, if you crucify out on a hill up there, it's a Muslim cemetery. That's not where he's crucified. I think a bus station is about the spot where he's crucified. And there's a lot of evidence for that. Verse 20, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You know what that is? 
When they would execute somebody, they would put the charge around his neck. And by the way, they took Jesus the longest possible route that could be taken from the courtroom of Pilate, the Via Della Rosa. Some of you walked. It's the longest possible route because they wanted everybody to see. Here's a criminal. He's being crucified. Here's what he's charged with. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, blasphemy. And then when they nailed the cross, they put that placket up above his head. It was written in Hebrew. Why in Hebrew? That's the language of religion, is it not? So here he has, the king is over all religious understanding. It is a public pronunciation. He is king over all religious, religious activities, guru, all the past, all the present, all the future. It was written in the language of religion. It was also written in the language of Latin. That would be the language of the law, the, the official language, the way people would be prosecuted. It was a legal language. So therefore, we see he is king of all leg legislation, of all law, of all rules, of all legislators. That's the inference here. And then also, it was written what else? It was written in Greek. That means he was lord of all the culture, creativity, art, science, sculpture, all the creative arts, Greek. So here he is proclaimed to be king of all. And that was a, to say it, we would understand a gospel track. Wasn't it? Yeah, a little gospel track tells you how to be saved. It just points out this little placket that was around the neck of Jesus and there nailed on the cross above Jesus. It really was a gospel tract saying he is king over everything, over religion, over law, over government. He is king over all the arts. By the way, was it effective? We hand out little tracts, some people. Is it effective? It was effective here because we know we'll discover a centurion came to believe in him. It was effective because one of the thieves on the cross believed in him. That was the confirmation we had there in the second confirmation of Jesus in answered prayer. Today you'll be in paradise. And he said, what did he say? Remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. He saw the placket up there. Here's a king. He saw that Jesus was a king. Now, he didn't know everything. He didn't understand everything. The centurion didn't know anything. That they responded to the light that they had been given. That's all God ever asked, isn't it? Respond to the lie he'd given. So the little placket, the little gospel tract evidently worked. And then we come to the next part of our introduction before our third word from the cross. And it says, Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was a seamless woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, underline that, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. All of this is put in in detail. Why? It is the fulfillment of scripture written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, Psalm 22, Isaiah, etc. There is a description in the Old Testament of a crucifixion when, as far as we know historically, crucifixions had never taken place. And it's very detailed. 
A Jew would have about him five articles of clothing, sandals, an undergarment, a girdle, and some kind of turban, and probably an outer tunic or cloak. And there were four soldiers, and somebody got the sandals, somebody got the inner garment, somebody got the girdle, the belt, somebody got the turban, and this robe, which would really be a very short robe, but a beautiful robe, they didn't want to tear it, so they, they cast lots, they threw dice, and one of them got it. All of this is told in detail because it fulfills prophecy written down hundreds, thousands of years before. So somebody comes speculating about all this, all they have to do is read and say, wow, wow, look at the detailed fulfillment of prophecy concerning Messiah. And now we come as an introduction to the third word that Jesus spoke from the cross. Interesting. We always sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross, right? We, we sang that a little earlier. And we have in our Christian vocabulary, stay near the cross. Cling to the cross. Kneel at the cross. Run to the cross. Don't ever get far away from the cross. Right? Isn't that a part of our vocabulary? All your sins are washed away at the cross. At the cross. What's that all about? Is that just some slick little Christian words that we throw out? Boy, just stay near the cross. Man, don't get far away from the cross. Linger at the cross. Fall at the cross. Cry at the cross. Go to the cross. What's that all about? Now, another question. If you had been in Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion, maybe Passover, happened to be there, how near to the cross would you have been? Huh? You reckon? I thought about that. You know, reckon I'd been to the cross. You think I'd have gone there? I'm a Jew. Uh, I went to the Passover. Uh, you know. Well, would I have been there? What's the importance of being near to the cross? And I thought about that, and I said, you know, I want to learn what this really means and understand it, so I thought it'd be good if we interviewed some of those people who were near the cross, who were under the cross, who were standing at the cross. We could go and interview them and ask them, why are you here? And we would learn something from those who were at the cross. And that, that's our scripture. Look at it. Therefore, verse 25, the soldiers did these things. We looked at that, the soldiers. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother, the disciple, he loved was standing nearby. That's John. Five of them at the cross. Four were women. Where are the big courageous men? Five were at the cross, standing near the cross, under the cross. Four were women. Does that embarrass any of you guys? 
What about all of our courageous masculinity? Where were the men? Head one, John. But let's interview those that said, standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother. Mary was standing by the cross. Surprise anybody? You see, Mary, we go back to the Gospel of Luke, and, and we read about the Magnificent there, and it says that when the angel Gabriel came and told her as a virgin that you're going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, she figured it out. She was going to be the mother of the Son of God. And by the way, parenthetically, we stay away from praising Mary in the Protestant tradition, but that should not take away from the fact she was not divine, but from the fact that she was a magnificent mother. And so, in that situation, I want you to bump into one pregnant word. I love pregnant words in the Bible. Mary was told she was pregnant, and look at her response in verse 29 when Gabriel came of Luke chapter number 1. One word I want you to see. And coming in, he said to her, Gabriel, greeting, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, Mary, was very perplexed. The Greek word there, I want you to see it. Dao, see it up there? Dao terasso. Dao meaning through the limit, terasso meaning acutely distressed. And by the way, this should go back later on till Mary hears prophecy. Remember when Jesus committed the temple and Simon said to her, your soul will be pierced. And it's translated trouble, perplexed, afflicted, greatly burdened, this word, paraterasso, pregnant word. Trouble, I think, is the best translation. And we see, and you look at the life of Mary, you see trouble. Trouble there, the fact she was a virgin, engaged to be married, and now she was pregnant. Trouble, trouble. We know an angel, Matthew tells us, appeared to Joseph, explained it to him. And she responded and said, I will do the will of God, not my will, but thy will be done, almost presupposing the same battle that Jesus had in Gethsemane that we've looked at very closely. She was troubled. Can you imagine when she was nine months pregnant and she had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, nine months pregnant? She was troubled. And when she got there, there was no room in the inn. You can be sure Mary was Terrasso. She was troubled. And they had no place to put him except in a feeding trough, a manger. That would trouble you. She was troubled. And then we know she went to the temple eight days to commit Jesus for purification. And we've already looked at Simeon who said, through this son, your soul will be Pierce, that's the meaning of this word, dao terasso. It means all the way through, dao terasso, greatly distressed, troubled. We see that all the way through Mary's experience. By the way, Mary isn't prominent in the New Testament. It's almost like she's in the shadows over here. She, she's sort of in the shadows over here. 
to be sure, with Jesus when he was 12, didn't leave with the rest of them. They had to go back and find him. A mother, she'd be troubled, wouldn't she? Absolutely, she'd be troubled. Trouble, trouble just covered the life of the Virgin Mary because of Jesus. Jesus, her virgin-born son. She would be Trouble. And you imagine that when Jesus spoke in Nazareth in the home synagogue in the hometown, he was standing up as a rabbi presiding in a service. The whole family would have been there, would they not? Sure, they would have been to hear my boy, my son. But what happened? He became so piercing and his attack upon the lack of faithfulness of the Jews. They wanted to kill him and push him over the cliff. And I've been to that very cliff in Nazareth. And you go over that cliff, I can tell you, it's all over. Boy, that would have troubled Mary. And what about when the family went to Jesus while he was teaching in the middle of his ministry there in Galilee and his family, his, his brothers, four brothers, at least two sisters. They said, man, he's out of his mind. Have him to come out here. We'll take him home. And he wouldn't even go out to greet his family. Mary was troubled troubled, right? Right? Mothers, you understand that. She would have been troubled. It was a mystery to her. She understood. She, she had inside information. Make no mistake about it. But still, that didn't simplify her high and holy calling, did it? All the way through, trouble, trouble, trouble. And we see, certainly she was at the foot of the cross. Near the cross, she was troubled. Did you notice she was the only member of her family there? Where are the four sons? Where are the least two sisters? She's there alone. Evidently, they had given up on Jesus, and they said he's crazy, he's foolish, and, and, and they just stayed away, and she had to stand there at the foot of the cross, troubled. But we interview Mary, the mother of our Messiah, and we ask her, why are you near the cross? We're going to learn. It's because she would tell us, I believe. I believe. I don't understand all these side streets. I don't understand the persecution. I don't understand the religious leaders condemning him. I don't understand the brutality of Rome. I, I didn't expect this, but I'm here because in all the mystery of the cross and the unjust trial and death of my son, I stand here because I believe. At the foot of the cross, you discover belief, belief. Then let's interview the next one at the cross. It says, Mary's sister, it would be Salome. Name rang a bell. Salome was the wife of who? You remember who? The wife of the man who gave birth to two of the apostles, James and John, the wife of Zebedee, right? And remember what Salome had did? Had gone to Jesus just a few days before and said, Jesus, I see you're coming in your kingdom. I want my boys to be vice president and secretary of state. Hello. She was at the foot of the cross. What do we see why was she there? She says, I'm here in the light of the cross. I'm experiencing humility. At the foot of the cross, you find humility, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Salome found, humility. All the pride to push in first place, 
Now she wasn't saying, you know, I don't know where are my boys. Remember Caiaphas when he was examining Jesus? He said, where, where are your disciples? Where are your followers? You're here by yourself. Jesus didn't answer, remember. They were A-W-O-L, absent without leave. They'd run away. But here Mary was there. She's saying, I believe. Salome was there. She's saying, I'm humbled. I'm humbled. I push my boys and I'm humbled. And then we have another Mary. Three Marys were there. Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Remember him? I had to look up Cleopas. Cleopas was one of the disciples Jesus met in the road to Emmaus. And evidently, she was there because she'd been a follower of Jesus, and she didn't understand his death. She was there because she was simply faithful, because we see from the account there on the road that her husband was evidently a faithful disciple, and therefore Jesus, remember, revealed himself to him in that resurrected appearance. So she was there simply, I'm faithful. So you find faithfulness at the cross. You find belief at the cross. You find humility at the cross. If you interview those who were standing near the cross, staying near to the cross. And then Mary Magdalene was there. Oh, yeah. Why was she there? What would you learn from Mary Magdalene? You would learn, I think, one word, redeemed. She had seven devils. She lived a vicious, immoral life. A lot of people speculate she's a woman washed the feet of Jesus in the Pharisee's house. That is sheer speculation. It certainly could have been. But we know that she met Jesus, and all of a sudden, she experienced salvation. And salvation, remember, has two big words about it. Salvation means that you have been released, and it means you have been healed released and healed, rescued and healed, salvation. She experienced that. So therefore, at the foot of the cross, you induce her, you tell you, she says, I don't know what's going on exactly here, but I can tell you one thing, I've been redeemed. I've been redeemed. Okay, that's the women. We learn a lot interviewing them near the cross. It's all available to us near the cross. But there's one man there. There's John, the beloved disciple. John, John, you're here. Now, you ran away like the rest of them. You were not even as bold as Peter to warm around the fire there, but you are now back here at a strategic time at the cross. John, why are you here? He says, I'm here to be forgiven. You find forgiveness at the cross. What these five individuals found, it's available for all of us. That's the reason we're to stay near the cross. We're to go to the cross. We're to kneel before the cross. He said, I'm forgiven. And what a story John would tell. Not only the Gospel of John did he write, but he wrote the book of Revelation. He was the one who lived longer than the other apostles, and God in his divine economy just lifted a little bit the lid from heaven and let John see all the way into eternity. Man, what a privilege that he had. So at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my soul rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day at the cross. 
Boy, we interview those people. We pick up something. By the way, there was somebody else there. He was hanging on the cross. What was that? Salvation. We've already looked at it. Rescue and healing. Rescued by the cross, by Calvary, by the shed blood of Jesus, and healing by the resurrection in and out of us forever. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, the burden of my soul rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day at the cross. That's why we say, come to the cross, kneel at the cross. Salvation was there too, summarizing all the rest of it at the cross as we look at this experience. And now we have that, those final words of phrases in this third word of Jesus. He looks at Mary and says, woman, build your son and point at John. Looked at John, his closest, best, most intimate friend. He said, John, from now on, this is your mother. All this from the cross, from the cross. The two people in the flesh Jesus most loved, his mother and John, his mother and John. He provided for them. Now, just get this in your mind. I had a tough time getting a hold of this. Here is Jesus in a cosmic transaction. Get that? A cosmic transaction. He is the propitiation. He is the substitute for all of mankind, leaving a way for human beings to find a way all the way to God and all the way to heaven. That is taking place there on the cross. But what does he do? He remembers his family responsibilities. I know a lot of people in my profession. And they say, well, you know, the preacher's kids are always bad kids. They're always rebellious. They always go straight. Ah, 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 ah. Boy, the preacher's doing all this godly work. He doesn't have any time for his family. Or you're so active in the church, and I was teaching, and I didn't have to. Let me tell you something. Whatever you're calling your highest responsibility under God, first of all, is to make sure that you're there as a spiritual leader, as a mom or a mother in your family. Here is Jesus, let me say it again, with a cosmic transaction, and he thought of his mom, and he thought of his best buddy, and there was a Jewish adoption that took place. It reaffirmed John. He didn't say, John, I know you ran. I know you weren't there. And I need. It just reaffirmed him, and it gave security for his mother because evidently the rest of the kids had all disappeared. Two little quick things that I bumped into. First is the resurrection experience. There's one resurrection account which talks about, remember James and, I mean, Peter and John ran to the tomb there on Easter morning. You remember that one? And they got there, and it's in the Gospel of John, by the way, and they ran there, and John says that he outran Peter. Read it, it says John outran Peter. The beloved outran Peter. He got there first. Peter got there second, a little overweight. John didn't go in. Peter went in and saw all the clothes there, and he said, man, man, he's gone. He's believed, and they began to believe he was resurrected. And then it says they went to their own house. They left there. John went back home following this view of an empty tomb. Why do you think he went back home? 
I think he went back home to tell Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's why he went back home. Mary, we don't know what's going on. We didn't understand the cross, but I'm telling you, the tomb is empty and everything is laid in place. He went home to tell Mary, the adopted son. Show you something else that's, I think, so interesting. In Acts chapter number 1, I think it's verse 14, we have, this is crucifixion. Now we have resurrection. Now they're going to the upper room to pray for Pentecost. It names all the apostles that are there. And he says, Mary went there with her four sons, the A-W-O-L brothers of Jesus. Mary went there with James and Joseph and Simon and Jude, her other four sons. Evidently now, following the resurrection, healing had taken place in the family. Jesus said, I came like a sword to divide, but also he came like one who healed. At the cross, at the cross, do we learn anything from these four ladies? Do we learn anything from him who was dying on the cross? Absolutely. We find belief. We find humility. We find redemption. We find salvation. Oh, at the cross, at the cross, at the cross, where we first saw the light. It's Memorial Day weekend. Do you know how Memorial Day began? To remember those who died in our nation's service? Anybody know? Better not guess. I know. Memorial Day didn't begin after the Revolutionary War. Oh, there was some Memorial Day celebration. Memorial Day really began, and the pressure to make it official on our calendar following the Confederate War. <whistles> Surprise. Following the Confederate War in 1866 in the Confederate Cemetery outside of Columbus, Mississippi, there was a Confederate cemetery, and the mothers on this particular weekend, the mothers of Confederate sons who had died, went out there with just carloads of flowers and covered all the graves of their sons and their husbands who died in the Confederate War. I mean, the whole, it was a sea of flowers in this Confederate cemetery. cemetery. And when they got back, they looked around and they saw just grassy spots in this Confederate cemetery. And they were not covered with flowers. And they went out there and discovered that Union soldiers were also buried all through this Confederate cemetery. And those mothers said, you know, there are mothers there up north who they don't know where their sons are buried. And they're not here. And they went and took flowers and put them on all the Union soldiers gave, who gave their life. And now the whole cemetery was covered with flowers. That was where Memorial Day began, right there in that cemetery. There's something about a mother, isn't it? Something about a mom. Memorial Day is a reflection of Mother's Day, and we see how important it is to see Mary, the mother of Jesus, standing by the cross of her only begotten 
son. Ladies and gentlemen, that is where you and I need to abide, to stand, to kneel, because it is there we discover belief. It is there we find humility. It is there we find steadfastness. It is there we find salvation. It's all there at the foot of the cross. So we can pray, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Bring me to the cross. Because there is a point of new life. New life. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Dr. Young joins us in the studio now. Dr. Young, one of the things you discussed today was that Christianity is unique in that no other world religion is based on God sacrificing himself for us. Talk a bit more about how that sets Christianity apart. When you say something is unique, by definition, that means nothing is like this thing. Nothing is like this person. Nothing is like this particular entity that you're talking about. And so Christianity has a lot of things that in different categories are unique. Uh, The fact that Christianity is invested in history, the fact that Christianity offers a life beyond this life that's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are so many things about Christianity in the various theological categories that are absolutely unique. And no other world religion can compete with Christianity. When you put alongside the worldview of Islam, you put alongside the worldview of of the Buddhists, of the Shintos, of all the different major religions, and you look, put it beside it, the Christian worldview, there is a striking, striking difference. It's based in time and space and personality. It's based not upon some visionary kind of experience someone might have had and written it down as if it came from some sort of God. It is based on true, true history that has been investigated from every way you can investigate history that took place in antiquity. Also, Christianity is unique, and we see it work. Someone who's lost, and they're found. Someone who is all confused, and their whole life is bad news. Jesus Christ comes, and they receive the good news of that new life. And you see before your eyes a miracle, a transformation. So there's so much that is unique about Christianity. And the whole plan of salvation, man could not have thought of this. God condescending, becoming a man, taking on human flesh. What kind of religion is this? It's not a religion. Religion is what you do and what you don't do. Christianity is what has been done for us in Jesus Christ. As we see his life, his death, his resurrection, and the promised coming again of Jesus Christ as he brings down the curtain of history. All of these basic entities of the gospel, the the biblical word is kerugma, the preexistence of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial uh, substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming again, all of those entities that was proclaimed in the early church that is proclaimed today, each one stands unique. 
Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.